Chapter 18, Part 2 of Volume 2 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. Volume 2 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 18. The Kingship in France. Part 2. Into his relations with his two powerful neighbours, the King of England, Duke of Normandy, and the Emperor of Germany, Louis the Fat, introduced the same watchfulness, the same firmness, and at need, the same warlike energy, whilst observing the same moderation, and the same policy of holding aloof from all turbulent or indiscreet ambition, adjusting his pretensions to his power, and being more concerned to govern his kingdom efficiently than to add to it by conquest. Twice in 1109 and in 1118 he had war in Normandy with Henry I, King of England, and he therein was guilty of certain temerities resulting in a reverse, which he hastened to repair during the vigorous prosecution of the campaign. But, when once his honour was satisfied, he showed a ready inclination for the peace which the Pope, Calixtus II, in council at Rome, succeeded in establishing between the two rivals. The war with the Emperor of Germany, Henry V, in 1124, appeared, at the first blush, a more serious matter. The Emperor had raised a numerous army of Lorrainers, Alemannians, Bavarians, Swabians, and Saxons, and was threatening the very city of Rheims with instant attack. Louis hastened to put himself in position, he went and took solemnly, at the altar of Saint-Denis, the banner of that particular patron of the kingdom, and flew with a mere handful of men to confront the enemy, and parry the first blow, calling on the whole of France to follow him. France summoned the flower of her chivalry, and when the army had assembled from every quarter of the kingdom at Rheims, there was seen, said Suger, so great a host of knights and men afoot, that they might have been compared to swarms of grasshoppers covering the face of the earth not only on the banks of the rivers, but on the mountains and over the plains. The multitude was formed in three divisions. The third division was composed of Orleanese, Parisians, the people of Etampes, and those of Saint-Denis, and at their head was the king in person. With them, said he, I shall fight bravely and with good assurance. Besides being protected by the saint, my liege lord, I have here of my countrymen, those who nurtured me with peculiar affection, and who, of a surety, will bring me back living, or carry me off dead, and save my body. At news of this mighty host, and the ardour with which they were animated, the Emperor Henry V advanced no farther, and, before long, marching under some pretext towards other places, he preferred the shame of retreating like a coward to the risk of exposing his empire and himself to certain destruction. After this victory, which was more than as great as a triumph on the field of battle, the French returned, every one, to their homes. The three elements which contributed to the formation and character of the kingship in France, the German element, the Roman element, and the Christian element, appear in conjunction with the reign of Louis the Fat. We have still the warrior chief of a feudal society, founded by conquest, in him who, in spite of his moderation and discretion, cried many a time, says Suger, what a pitiable state is this of ours, to never have knowledge and strength both together. 
in my youth had knowledge, and in my old age had strength been mine, I might have conquered many kingdoms, and probably from this exclamation of a king in the twelfth century came the familiar proverb, If youth but knew, and age could do. We see the maxims of the Roman Empire and reminiscences of Charlemagne in Louis's habit of considering justice to emanate from the king as fountainhead, and of believing in his rights to import it everywhere. And what conclusion of a reign could be more Christian-like than his when, exhausted by the long enfeeblement of his wasted body, but disdaining to die ignobly or unpreparedly, he called about him pious men, bishops, abbots, and many priests of holy church, and then, scorning all false shame, he demanded to make his confession devoutly before them all, and to fortify himself against death by the comfortable sacrament of the body and blood of Christ. While everything is being arranged, the king on a sudden rises, of himself, dresses himself, issues fully clad from his chamber, to the wonderment of all, advances to meet the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, and prostrates himself in reverence. Thereupon, in the presence of all, cleric and laic, he lays aside his kingship, deposes himself from the government of the state, confesses the sin of having ordered it all, hands to his son Louis the king's ring, and binds him to promise on oath to protect the church of God, the poor, and the orphan, to respect the rights of everybody, and to keep none prisoner in his court, save such a one as should have actually transgressed in the court itself. This king, so well prepared for death, in his last days found great cause for rejoicing as a father. William the Seventh, Duke of Aquitaine, had, at his death, entrusted to him the guardianship of his daughter Eleanor, heiress of all his dominions, that is to say, of Poitou, of Saint-Ong, of Gascony, and of the Basque country, the most beautiful provinces of the southwest of France, from the Lower Loire to the Pyrenees. A marriage between Eleanor and Louis the Young, already sharing his father's throne, was soon conducted, and a brilliant embassy, composed of more than five hundred lords and noble knights, to whom the king had added his intimate adviser Suger, set out for Aquitaine, where the ceremony was to take place. At the moment of departure the king had them all assembled about him, and, addressing himself to his son, said, May the strong hand of God Almighty, by whom kings reign, protect thee, my dear son, both thee and thine. If, by any mischance, I were to lose thee, thee and those I send with thee, neither my life nor my kingdom would thenceforth be aught to me. The marriage took place at Bordeaux at the end of July 1137, and on the 8th of August following, Louis the Young, on his way back to Paris, was crowned at Poitiers as Duke of Aquitaine. He there learned that the king, his father, had lately died on the 1st of August. Louis the Fat was far from foreseeing the deplorable issues of the marriage, which he regarded as one of the blessings of his reign. In spite of its long duration of forty-three years, the reign of Louis the Seventh, called the Young, was a period bound of events and of persons worthy of keeping a place in history. We have already had the story of this king's unfortunate crusade from 1147 to 1149, the commencement at Antioch of his imbroglio with his wife Eleanor of Aquitaine, and the fatal divorce which in 1152, at the same time that it freed the king from a faithless queen, entailed for France the loss of the beautiful provinces she had brought to him in dowry, and caused them to pass into the possession of Henry the Second, King of England. Here was the only event, under Louis the Young's reign, of any real importance, in view of its long and bloody consequences for his country. 
a petty war or a sullen strife between the kings of France and England, petty quarrels of Louis with some of the great lords of his kingdom, certain rigorous measures against certain districts in travail of local liberties, the first bubblings of that religious fermentation which resulted before long in the south of France in the crusade against the Albigensians, such were the facts which went to make up with somewhat of insipidity the annals of this reign. So long as Suga lived, the kingship preserved at home the wisdom which it had been accustomed to display, and abroad the respect it had acquired under Louis the Fat. But at the death of Suga it went on languishing and declining, without encountering any great obstacles. It was reserved for Louis the Young's son, Philip Augustus, to open for France, and for the kingship in France, a new era of strength and progress. Philip II, to whom history has preserved the name of Philip Augustus, given him by his contemporaries, had shared the crown, been anointed, and taken to wife Isabel of Hainault, a year before the death of Louis the Seventh, put him in possession of the kingdom. He was as yet only fifteen, and his father, by his will, had left him under the guidance of Philip of Alsace, Count of Flanders as regent, and of Robert Clermont, Marshal of France, as governor. But Philip, though he began his reign under this double influence, soon let it be seen that he intended to reign by himself, and to reign with vigour. Whatever my vassals do, I must bear with their violence and outrageous insults and villainous misdeeds. But please God, they will get weak and old whilst I shall grow in strength and power, and shall be, in my turn, avenged according to my desire. He was hardly twenty when, one day, one of his barons, seeing him gnawing, with an air of abstraction and dreaminess, a little green twig, said to his neighbours, if any one could tell me what the king is thinking of, I would give him my best horse. Another of those present boldly asked the king. I am thinking, answered Philip, of a certain matter, and that is whether God will grant unto me or unto one of my heirs grace to exalt France to the height at which she was in the time of Charlemagne. It was not granted to Philip Augustus to resuscitate the Frankish empire of Charlemagne, a work impossible for him or any one whatsoever in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries. But he made the extension and territorial construction of the kingdom of France the chief aim of his life, and in that work he was successful. Out of the forty-three years of his reign, twenty-six at the least were war years devoted to that very purpose. During the first six it was with some of his great French vassals, the Count of Champagne, the Duke of Burgundy, and even the Count of Flanders, sometimes regent, that Philip had to do battle, for they all sought to profit by his minority so as to make themselves independent and aggrandize themselves at the expense of the crown. But once in possession of the personal power as well as the title of king, it was from 1187 to 1216 against three successive kings of England, Henry II, Richard Coeur de Lyon, and John Lackland, masters of the most beautiful provinces of France, that Philip directed his persistent efforts. They were, in respect of power, of political capacity and military popularity, his most formidable foes. Henry II, what with his ripeness of age, his ability, energy, and perseverance, without any mean jealousy or puerile obstinacy, had over Philip every advantage of position and experience, and he availed himself thereof with discretion, habitually maintaining his feudal status of great French vassal as well as that of foreign sovereign seeking peace rather than strife with his youthful suzerain, and sometimes even going to his aid. He thus played off the greater part of the undeclared attempts or armed expeditions by which, from 1186 to 1189, 
Philip tried to cut him short in his French possessions, and so long as Henry II lived, there were but few changes in the territorial proportions of the two states. But at Henry's death, Philip found himself in a very different position towards Henry's two sons, Richard Coeur de Lyon and John Lackland. They were of his own generation. He had been on terms with them, even in opposition to their own father, of complicity and familiarity. They had no authority over him, and he had no respect for them. Richard was the feudal prince beyond comparison the boldest, the most unreflecting, the most passionate, the most ruffianly, the most heroic adventurer of the Middle Ages, hungering after movement and action, possessed of a craving spirit for displaying his strength, and doing his pleasure at all times and in all places, not only in contempt of the rights and well-being of his subjects, but at the risk of his own safety, his own power, and even of his crown. Philip was of a sedate temperament, patient, persevering, moved but little by the spirit of adventure, more ambitious than furry, capable of far-reaching designs, and discreet at the same time that he was indifferent to, as to the employment of means. He had fine sport with Richard. We have already had the story of the relations between them, and their rupture during their joint crusade in the east. On returning to the west, Philip did not wrest from King Richard those great and definitive conquests which were to restore to France the greater part of the marriage portion that went with Eleanor of Aquitaine. But he paved the way for them by petty victories and petty acquisitions, and making more and more certain of his superiority over his rival. When, after Richard's death, he had to do with John Lackland, cowardly and insolent, knavish and adulpated, choleric, debauched and indolent, an intriguing subordinate on the throne on which he made pretense to be the most despotic of kings. Philip had over him, even more than over his brother Richard, immense advantages. He made such use of them that after six years struggling from 1199 to 1205, he deprived John of the greater part of his French possessions, Anjou, Normandy, Touraine, Maine, and Poitou. Philip would have been quite willing to dispense with any legal procedure by way of sanction to his conquests, but John furnished him with an excellent pretext, for on the 3rd of April, 1203, he assassinated with his own hand, in the Tower of Rouen, his young nephew Arthur, Duke of Brittany, and in that capacity vassal of Philip Augustus, to whom he was coming to do homage. Philip had John, also his vassal, cited before the court of the barons of France, his peers, to plead his defence of this odious act. King John, says the contemporary English historian Matthew Paris, sent Eustace, Bishop of Ely, to tell King Philip that he would willingly go to his court to answer before his judges, and to show entire obedience in the matter, but that he must have a safe conduct. But King Philip replied, but with neither heart nor visage unmoved, willingly, let him come in peace and safety. And return so too, my lord? said the bishop. Yes, rejoined the king if the decision of his peers allow him. And when the envoys from England entreated him to grant to the king of England to go and return in safety, the king of France was wroth, and answered with his usual oath, No, by all the saints of France, unless the decision tally therewith. My lord king, rejoined the bishop, the duke of Normandy cannot come unless there come also the king of England, since the duke and the king are one and the same person. The baronage of England would never allow it in any way and if the king were willing, he would run, as you know, risk of imprisonment or death. King Philip answered him, How now, my lord bishop? It is well known that my liegeman, the Duke of Normandy, by violence got possession of England, 
and so, prithee, if a vassal increase in honour and power, shall his lord suzerain lose his rights? Never! King John was not willing to trust to chance and the decision of the French, who liked him not, and he feared above everything to be reproached with the shameful murder of Arthur. The grandees of France nevertheless proceeded to a decision which they could not do lawfully, since he whom they had to try was absent, and would have gone had he been able. The condemnation, not the wit the less, took full effect, and Philip Augustus thus recovered possession of nearly all the territories which his father, Louis the Seventh, had kept but for a moment. He added in succession other provinces to his dominions, in such wise that the kingdom of France, which was limited, as we have seen, under Louis the Fat, to the Ile de France, and certain portions of Picardy and Orleanese, comprised besides, at the end of the reign of Philip Augustus, Vermandois, Artois, the two Vexons, French and Norman, Berry, Normandy, Maine, Anjou, Poitou, Touraine, and Auvergne. End of chapter 18, part 2